what is the story with Harlan the Wolf? What's um, going on there? <laughs> that's funny. Um, it's you know a little reminder of home. That's uh -huh. the... did you did your people work in Harlan the Wolf or something? No, I don't think so. No, I don't have it. I don't know. But um, it was. I wonder if I was in my school. There were houses, mm -hmm. and I wonder if I was in Harlan the Wolf. I don't think they had. I think they had Sirocco. Is that what? The company was called that owned Harlan and Wolf, Sirocco, I'm not sure. Sirocco they was deployed? like the aerospace company, That was right? the aerospace company, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I think I was in that house in my school, yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah, Because uh, I remember my mother telling me stories about Harlan and Wolf when they built the Titanic. They wrote all these messages on inside, the, on the hole, oh, like, yeah, fuck the Pope and, you know, down with fucking Catholic Ireland and all this kind of shit, you know? Oh, yeah. And then, obviously, when it sank, he said, she said all the people on the falls were, were out celebrating because... As I write all that stuff that was written in yeah. there, yeah, poetic justice of some kind. Very good. Well, there, there are very few uh, nationalists working, I guess, in Harlan and Wolf. You wouldn't would get been, a job. You, you wouldn't, wouldn't get a job. No, they weren't allowed. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. things have things have gone downhill since those days. Catholics can get jobs. Worse. Yeah, the good old days. They all got jobs. They go to Queens. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, here I well, on that note, I'm going to just introduce you to. Uh, a few people and we're going to have a chat. So this is Sean McDonald. I'm pronouncing McDonald correctly. You are I always just worry. People have different pronunciations for things. Um, well, for McDonald's, it's just like the burgers. McDonald's, easy. That hmm. was an easy one, to be honest. Uh, and you're a psychotherapeutic psychoanalyst? Yeah, the other way around. Psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Okay. Uh, is there a difference or is it just a way it's to say It's just a nomenclature, uh, I believe. Very good. Mm -hmm. And you have a kind of Lacanian training, is that right? Yeah, I did my training in Ireland uh, with, yeah, my master's was in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which is yeah. Freudian Lacanian. Yeah. Very good. I, like, I'm surprised there, there's a big Lacanian school in Ireland. There it? are many Lacanians in Dublin and there are many schools within, within Dublin itself. I think there are like five schools of psychoanalysis, Lacanian psychoanalysis. Wow. Because with Freud and Lacan, everything splits, splits, splits. Yeah. So it becomes quite difficult to navigate your way around these um, different beliefs, I guess. Yeah. Um, schisms. Schisms. Yes. Yeah. yeah, which is like that. That's a good, interesting thing in itself is you kind of think of psychotherapists, psychoanalysts as being, you know, they have done a lot of therapy in their time and being yeah. healthy people. But you do find there's sometimes conflicts, sometimes healthy schisms and sometimes unhealthy schisms. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. There are healthy schisms and then there are personality kind of schisms. And I don't think Freud or Lacan was, were immune to those things themselves. I mean, yeah. you know, Freud obviously had his differences with Jung and with Breuer and all these people, all these other kind of preeminent people in his time. Um, and I guess... Freud, for all his um, for all his genius, he was quite egotistical in his own way. You know, yeah. I mean, like in the interpretation of dreams, he talks about like there'll be a plaque put on his house that says, "Here on this date in eighteen ninety nine, the discovery of dreams was made by Sigmund Freud." Yeah. So, Although he was right. Although is is that a case of the the yeah. kind of paranoid person just happened to be empirically correct? because <laughs> he he was, or was he just very aware of his own genius? I think he was aware that um, he was doing something different, mm. you know, and I think he was aware that he had, because he graduated, he was originally um, like a biologist, he worked on anatomy and stuff like that, and he moved from that into hypnotherapy, and he realized that during the hypnotherapy that it was suggestion that was the problem, so he, it, it still happens today in psychotherapy, where you kind of, 
the therapist will believe that they know what what the client is talking about and they kind of interject mm -hmm. and they kind of jump in yeah and um it happens in hypnotherapy one suggests something right so you're leading somebody down a road yeah okay so it's a corrective experience in that sense right so he realized that if i just suggest things to people then i'm just they're just going to give me the answers they want okay or they think i want mm -hmm. so he had to kind of break away from that and i think that was the break with breuer originally um and then he developed the idea of free association yeah I mean, that, by the way, I mean, that's something that Lacan seems to be very uh, keen on is that some forms of psychoanalysis do want to lead to some extent the mm -hmm. analyze and, but like countertransference and using that. But Lacan yes. seems to be kind of more strict about saying, like, try to intervene as little as possible. Would that be correct? Yeah, but he doesn't talk about transference and countertransference. He just calls it mm -hmm. transference, mm -hmm. and he believes that like it, it, it kind of flows between the people. Yeah. Um. So, he would say, don't analyze the transference. Analyze in the transference. So you've got to accept whatever object you're being for the analyzons un unconscious. Whatever object you're being, you have to accept that. Mm -hmm. even if you don't know what it is, which we don't know most of the time. So you've got to accept that and not try to step outside of it. Yeah. And kind of say, well, look at what you're doing. Because mm. that objectifies somebody. Yes. Or it um, minimizes or normalizes their individuality. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It generalizes it. Yeah. You're doing this because of that. Yeah. Whereas we really don't know why people do things. Yeah. Only they know why. And even they don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and it's pretty complicated. Yeah. And you, when, you, when you use the word object, in psychoanalysis, mm. the object is a type of internalized kind of relation to another. So whenever you say about the analyst becoming an object, for saying mm. me, if, I, if I'm the analyzant, um, that means in a way you're kind of an externalization of some sort of maybe internal relationship with my father. Is that what you mean by object? Or, yes. Yeah. Yes. Speaking. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's the subject who's the only known. Most of the time, it's the subject, the split subject, right? There's yeah. split between the conscious and the unconscious. Yeah. Okay. And then they have been treated as objects, or they've been seen as objects by people, right? Okay. So they've experienced what it's like to be objectified, but they've also objectified. Yeah. And not, not I don't mean objectified in a negative sense yes. per se. It's just that is just the psychical reality, I guess. Yeah. 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 Oh, by the way, one other thing about Freud, because yes. um, we haven't. There's a lot of things about Freud. There's a lot of things about Freud, but you know, I think he was right to kind of like kick Jung out and to be a little bit strict, because mm. you know, Freud seemed to he, he had a sense of what he was doing. He had a sense that he was doing something unique, something yeah. important, and I guess had a sense that it could be watered down very early on, and actually he had to <clears> be very strict to try to keep the theory very pure in the early days. Because if you kind of, you know, if you let uh, too many people in, it can dilute it very, very easily. Mm. So I can kind of see why for Freud, he was very strict. Well, um, he certainly had a clarity about, about his purpose, right? Yeah. He, he was very clear in that he was, well, he was like a good old fashioned searcher, you know, he just wanted to search and to, to find things. Yeah. And um, my understanding of, I don't know a great deal about Jung at all, but my understanding of where their split comes from, it's about infantile sexuality. Mm -hmm. And Freud's assertion that, you know, children do have a sexual life, you know, they play with their whittlers and all that kind of stuff, right? And they have a curiosity. Yeah. But Jung didn't, to my understanding, he didn't believe that. And that was 
the basis of their fissure, right? The basis yeah. of their break. Yeah, and I think like for me, the way yeah. I then think that it parses itself out and see what you think about this yeah. is in the central notion of the unconscious is that mm. that for Jung he went more in this notion of the unconscious one as, as a type of compensatory mechanism it's a type of balance between consciousness and unconscious right. so for Jung uh, if you have a very strong kind of love of somebody that's kind of like completely out of sync mm. uh, your unconscious might actually try to rebalance that by giving you dreams where that person is ugly or weak um, and okay. it's this sense of this balance whereas mm -hmm. for Freud the unconscious isn't so much a thing it's kind of the split itself you can't kind of find balance with the unconscious like the unconscious is what brings imbalance it's what kind of fundamentally imbalances the subject so for, for, well that's so that's how I parse them out okay what do you think about that um, well, like I said, I don't know a great deal about Jung, but my understanding is that he also speaks about a thing called the collective unconscious, oh, yeah. right? So, which I believe is his idea of like, um, like culture and um, inheritance, right? yeah. okay, and myths and all of this. This is what he believes is the collective unconscious. Yeah. Whereas Freud, and then later followed by clarified by Lacan, I guess, is that the unconscious is very individual. Yeah. Okay. We, we, our unconscious speaks, but it speaks our own language and it's a mixture of reality, of imaginary things and fantasy, right? So that, that for me is the main difference. That's how I try to parse them. Well, here, but yeah. I, have a, I have a very good analogy for the unconscious that you yes. like. Let's Go see what on. you think. It's from Northern Ireland. It's oh, dairy. I'm, I'm bound to like it. Yeah, you're gonna, it's, it's the difference between dairy and London dairy, uh -huh. right? A city that, it's one city, and during the Troubles, as you know, um, mm -hmm. you, you either called it Derry or London Derry. Yes. And if you called it Derry, you're a dirty nationalist. Obviously. And if you were, if you called it London Derry, you're a good, honest Protestant boy, right? Yes. And um, so you could never name the city without getting in trouble, um, and you had to be very careful. And so for me, then if you remember Jerry, uh, is it, who Jerry, was it? Jerry, no, Jerry, the, the, the DJ, Stroke City, he used to call it. Yeah, Stroke City, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jerry something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember his name, but he's a, a radio Nolan personality. No, you're, you're mixing up Stephen Nolan. Right, okay. that Anderson. Jerry Anderson. Anderson Jerry Anderson, that's right. He started calling it Stroke City. That's right, yeah. Because some people would say on the news, Derry Stroke London Derry. That's why yes. they got away with yes. it on the news. They would call it Derry Stroke London Derry, and he called it Stroke City. And I was like, oh, that's the unconscious. It's what kind of, there's one city, but it's fundamentally destabilized from within. And the unconscious isn't one kind of uh, worldview or the other. It's kind of what makes the city not at one with itself. What do you think of that? Well, I guess <laughs> I guess it's the otherness, right? It's the otherness when, if you want to talk about the North, um, or the occupied six counties, as we call it, <laughs> um, <laughs> we could say that um, it's the otherness, right? It's the otherness of Protestant Protestantism, it's, uh, the otherness otherness of nationalism, right? That's yeah. the unconscious, is the otherness. Uh, yeah. And then Freud could have called it like the narcissism of minor differences, because really, what's the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Apart from certain religious beliefs about whether Mary. I mean, that's the hilarious had thing. Had the real sex or only had the imaginary sex, right? right. Yeah, I mean, like, we, we weren't even different religions. I mean, it was still Christianity. It's, <laughs> it's an offshoot, right? It's an offshoot, right? off yeah. yeah. It's, it's, but it's, it's that otherness, yeah, right? Yeah. So, to go back to the North, um, there is this irrational fear among loyalists among, and among nationalists of what the other is. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. There's an unknown. 
And yep. that's what the unconscious is. I don't know what this other is. Right. And it's not necessarily that we're different. Yeah. But we assume a difference. Yes, yes. Right? And yeah. this idea of difference is very important as well. Yeah. So but there's so there's that notion of otherness, but then mm. also to what how does that connect with this notion of just a kind of split that doesn't exist in reality, but a split that exists in in the symbolic. So like Londonderry, okay. like the stroke doesn't exist in reality. It's yeah. it's purely an effect of um, this kind of like not at oneness within yes. the city. So I suppose those are two can interconnected things, otherness and is there Well a, I guess uh, even before it became Derry or Londonderry it was just a place, mm-hmm. right? So language um, designated it, it nominated it yeah. as Derry and then later as Londonderry. Yeah. Right, okay. So when you talk about this idea of the symbolic, I guess you're talking about Lacan's idea of the symbolic and the, the three orders, yeah. okay? So really when when we talk about symbolic we're talking about culture, we're talking about language, particularly the imposition of a language on a child, okay? Yeah. And they have to assume language in order to enter into the world. So when they assume language and they start to speak and they start to categorize things through language and differentiate things, that's when the symbolic is born and that's also when we separate out from the animal world in that sense, yeah. the real, as Lacan would call it, right? Yeah. Like this idea of the real, um, one of my professors spoke about it and said, it's like when you trip, right? That's what the real is. It's that, it's that moment where the ground falls from under your feet and you completely lose all kind of tethering to the world. Yeah. Okay? You're t- tethering to your reality. Right. That's the real. So it slips in and it invades on the symbolic, I guess. But yeah. we always find we always find our feet again and the words yeah. come and we keep on talking and we paper over these cracks. But it's there. And the cracks, mm-hmm. the, the, yeah, the interesting thing, and by the way, you know, we'll come back to kind of Christmas in a sec, because I did call this Surviving Christmas, but, that, yes. but I like the fact this is just going to go lots of different Let's places. just survive the, nor- the Northern Irish Troubles yeah. and then you know, <laughs> yeah. we can survive Christmas after that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, um, the split, the, yeah. The, the, so this symbolic creates cracks. That's why I like the kind of the, the stroke in Londonderry is like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, frag, it's a crack, but it's a Ooh. crack that's created by language. That's what the real is for Lacan, isn't it? Isn't that right? It's, it's kind of... Um, it's the cracks in the symbolic edifice. Well, it's it's the lack of the symbolic or language's ability, particularly to um, symbolize everything. Yeah, we can't symbolize everything through language. Okay, mm. it's a semiotic yeah. system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but we cannot symbolize everything. We cannot um, describe reality through words. Yeah, we can approximate, right, or we can represent which is what we talk about a lot, representation, like a dream is a representation of something, right? So we can represent things through words, but we can never get to the heart of it. There's yeah. something that's gone. Yeah. And, and, and that could be seen, yeah. what is it, like, uh, that can be seen as an evolution. I mean, some people will hear that and mm-hmm. go, okay, language can never achieve this. But yes. another way of looking at it is, we actually, we used to have communication. Animals have communication, mm-hmm. which is where they do accurately describe exactly how they feel when a bird sings a certain signal is sent out it's mm. completely picked up the way it should be i mean there can be changes but there's no ambiguity in the signal the other birds know what it means a warning signal a mating signal etc or computer right. languages where a computer communicates in such a way that everything is kind of put across 
Right. But then, then at a certain point, um, no means yes. At a certain point, communication becomes language. And when the way I think of it is communication is mm-hmm. kind of like, is, is, is a very accurate description. Um, but language comes in whenever that starts to fall apart and ambiguity enters. Whenever, whenever what starts to fall apart? The communication element? Well, and the understanding of communication? Is that what you mean? Or when, when, when yes can mean no and no can mean yes. Whenever at a certain point, let's say uh, like a myth of history, yeah. at a certain point an animal made a, a signal of danger whenever they really were trying to communicate something else. Like they, um, ambiguity and lies became part of the very nature of the communication. And is that like the beginning of language? Is that what you mean? See, that's what I'm wondering is that that's right. the beginning of language. Is language, communication is when no means no. And then language is whenever no means yes. You know, you, you say to somebody, you know, yeah. you, a, a father says to their kid, you yeah. know, I don't want you going out and getting drunk with your, your friends. But deep down, they'd be disappointed if you weren't going out and having a few drinks with them, right? So yeah. you know the no means yes. Or your parent says, I don't want you to uh, fight in school. But then they find out that you don't stand up for yourself and hit right. the bully. And they're, they're, they're kind of saying, oh, yeah, it was great. But you know that they mean it wasn't great. See, that's where I kind of go like, that's where communication becomes language. Right, okay. What do you think of that? I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I guess we, in psychoanalysis, in therapy or whatever you want to call it, we, would, we, we, we separate between what is uttered and what is, what is enunciated, okay? And what, what, what I utter is not necessarily what you hear. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of difficulty with language, okay? Because I speak from here mm-hmm. and you hear from there. Yeah. So you hear through your own particularities, yeah. okay, and your own experiences. So I could say some, like, because obviously you're, you come up in, grew up in the Protestant tradition in Northern Ireland, and my parents were Catholic tradition, so we have, I could say something to you that I would say to somebody else, and they would laugh, and you may not laugh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. so you see it through your own prism, in that sense, yeah. which is fine, Yeah. That, that's what we do, but in terms of, um, so that, that's what I utter and then what you hear right? yeah. okay and so this is where the idea of like slips of the tongue and um, parapraxis and all these formations of the unconscious that Freud talks about yeah that's where they come out because you say something and I hear it and I reflect it back to you in a different way and maybe you look at it then in, in a slightly different way and yeah. like oh maybe I am being bigoted or whatever yeah I'm speaking for myself here. and also and yeah. also then it's also that you can say things that you don't know you're saying. I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because well, we speak and we don't know what we say. Yeah. Well, you've had partners, right? Yeah. And you said something to them, and they've gone, ah, and they've gotten angry about it. Okay, and they go, no, that's not what I meant. Yeah. But that's what I heard. Yes. So yeah. something gets lost in translation or added in translation yeah. when it goes from the giver to the receiver. And the and the most extreme, obviously, yeah. is when you <clears> actually. Do you say it's like you're with a partner and you call them by the name of your ex-partner? Yes. Where like you, you literally, it's not even that they hear something in what you've said, is that you actually say something <laughs> that you don't hear yourself saying. You well, that's, that's your unconscious talking. Yeah. Exploding through, yeah. <laughs> well, that's slipping through, yeah. Slipping, yeah. slipping through that crack. Yeah. And that's probably not a good place to be yeah. if you do say that to your partner. Yes, yeah, it's very good. Thankfully, I don't think I've ever done that. But no. I, yeah, but then so, I mean, even the fact that someone has to watch themselves doing it. Although my dad, he always uh, misnamed us. 
he always got the kids' names wrong. He would sometimes, he'd even call you the dog. We had a dog called Scratch. So I don't know. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed it is. Yeah. But the, 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 the hook that I called this um, oh, yes. to the get Christmas people in hook. is Christmas, only because I was talking to you the other day mm. and uh, you were saying, oh yeah, you know, Christmas is a tough time for people sometimes. And mm-hmm. uh, actually post-Christmas people sometimes, that's, that's a time when people think about doing therapy. And yeah, getting, I, getting fit and doing therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, although my New Year's resolutions were to drink more and mm. to uh, do less exercise. So How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you set your sights low, you're never disappointed. That's true. Yeah. But after, I, after you said that, I was going like, oh yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's so obvious to us that Christmas is sometimes a difficult time. In fact, I think stats even show it that people can be more suicidal, mm-hmm. whatever. And I thought, okay, yeah, well, that's an interesting place to start because... Um, there is something about holidays and Christmas where it can agitate us in a certain way. Yeah. Um, the thought I have, and this I'll throw it out and then okay. you, you fire in, is, you know, at Christmas, there is a lot about the ideal of families mm-hmm. and relationships. They're, mm-hmm. they're everywhere, like mm-hmm. from Christmas cards and people send these cards to each other, which often have very beautiful pictures of their kids and their family. And yes. And also in TV shows that often in movies that have very idealized forms of the family. And so my first thought was, I wonder if Christmas can be difficult for people because we get agitated by all of these images that can kind of sometimes bring up within ourselves our own dissatisfactions, our own lack. Sure. Well, I mean, they remind us of what we don't have, right? I mean, because nobody has Christmases like that. Yeah. And if we think we do we're probably just remembering the Christmases from our childhood like when I think about my Christmas and my childhood they were great yeah but were they yeah um I enjoyed them you know what I mean but I don't I don't remember them yeah in that sense yeah um and I know that my parents had to you know go out and work and make money to buy presents and you know to make the food and have everybody over and go a big palaver right yeah so we certainly do idealize these things um and I think if you continue to stick with the ideal and continue to believe it then you're going to get persecuted right it's like we spoke about before we began about this you know it's imperative to enjoy yeah like christmas is the ultimate imperative to enjoy and if you're not enjoying you're a loser yes right okay yeah and you're a nobody and people don't really want to know right because you get this sense that the family's all together i don't really belong in this thing so you're excluded yeah and that's i think that's what's very difficult for people they feel excluded so they've nowhere to go so they just sit in their homes or their apartments and they just bury their heads yeah. for a week. Which probably isn't a bad strategy, but it's probably not good for them in that sense, right? Yeah. But it is something about how they how they see this idealized world. It's like believing advertisements. Yeah. Well, my friend, mm-hmm. uh, I've got a good friend, Jay Baker, who mm-hmm. uh, was the son of Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker, who were big evangelists back in the 80s. Okay. But they, um, they had a TV show that was very much, I think the set was basically their house, their living room. Mm-hmm. And at Christmas time, they had, it was like the perfect turkey. It was the perfect lighting. It was, and they had these pictures. That, so Jason sending me all of these pictures from his childhood right and it's incredible because what they were giving and what these images give is like the the, the perfect christmas from a you know the fantasy of uh, yeah, from uh, the picture postcard thing, yeah right and then everyone's at the table and the linen and they're all stabbing themselves with forks yes underneath it. well that's what he was saying i mean those were mm-hmm. very very difficult times for that whole family when you look at it you go my goodness the difference between 
the image mm-hmm. and what was going on behind the scenes is like phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and it certainly it mirrors um, people's difficulty with coming forward for treatment or looking to talk about the bad elements yeah. because they have this ideal and it's overwhelming for them, right? And they feel that they have to believe in it. Yeah. And if I don't, then, you know, I'm flawed. Yeah. And this, you mentioned the, um, this mm. injunction to enjoy, yeah. which is fascinating because people often think about, like, say, the superego, when they hear that term, mm-hmm. the, the thing that they think about is something that's, that's demanding that you be ethical or nicer to your mom or, yeah. or whatever. But mm-hmm. there is this notion, um, in psychoanalysis of like this actually often the superego injunction is you're not having enough fun go out and enjoy more like a demand <clears throat> to to uh be whole a demand to be satisfied is yeah that, so and well, then, i mean you, you you move i mean in, in psychoanalytic history you move from the freudian idea of the superego which is much more about what you were talking about initially right and you know the strong father and you must have ethics and you know it was much more um strict in that mm-hmm. sense but the, the more modern kind of superego is is the one of consumerism, is the one of enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. And if you're not enjoying, then quite clearly you have a mental disorder and you need to take pills. Yeah. Right? So um, it's moved in that sense because of this erosion of the authority figure of the father. And not necessarily yeah, just the dad, but yeah. this idea of um, institutions and um, authority, the authority that's given to institution. That has slowly eroded over time. And... You know, it's the I generation, my iPhone and my iPad, and it's all about I, 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 okay? Yeah. So therefore, if I'm not enjoying all this stuff that's made for me, there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. Right? So this imperative to enjoy is no less um, strict than the old superego. It's just in a different form. Yeah. Okay? I mean, that, that feels like, that's what it feels like with Christmas, is in one way that... It's repressive. That, yeah. Yeah, but that that voice, you know, that imperative is like it feels like Christmas is a time where it's almost palpable. I mean, it's it feels. I mean, you were asking me why I live in Los Angeles earlier mm-hmm. before the interview, and um, I was saying how I actually like my work goes down quite well here because whenever I say to people, um, you know, it's great to to pursue what will make you happy, but we need freedom from the pursuit of happiness sometimes. Yes. Uh, people here intuitively know what that means because without maybe feeling it. They're surrounded by this command to enjoy, to be famous, to be rich, to look uh-huh. good, to feel good, to, to, to do all of the right things. And you don't even realize how oppressive that is. I mean, you kind of know it, you maybe feel it, but it's, it's hard to articulate. And well, as soon as you go- Because it's omnipresent, right? It's yeah. Everywhere. It's just, so it's, it's, it feels like, it feels like the very fabric of, where you, of your life. Yeah. yeah. Like I go, I, I went to, there's a coffee shop I used to go to a lot, mm-hmm. Deus Ex Machina, but it was super cool. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they're always, they're always really beautiful people working there. And it look, it just, you know, you're sitting there going, hey, all these people have an amazing life. And LA is full of that. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is, um, one of the women who worked there, who yeah. I always thought would look so cool, she was, uh, you know, just dressed so great. And I think she was maybe, I don't know what, what she did there. Uh-huh. But sadly, I found out that she committed suicide um, and I didn't know her at all I only because I would drink their coffee there once a week I always yeah. saw her but in my head seeing her friends and her lifestyle I was like oh you know she's got it together that was yeah. kind of the the thought she looks happy she, she looks, looks happy. together yeah and then when I, just, when I when I find that out it was kind of it hit me partly just sadness sure. and also hit me going like oh look at that that fantasy that I had of this other that was you know completely ungrounded 
And, you know, it may be a fantasy that she had as well in terms of, like, I don't want to mm. say anything about somebody who's, who's passed away, but I do, I do notice that in, in Los Angeles a lot, there's people try to be happy. Oh, yeah. And generally, I have found some of these people are prone to low moods. So they, it's kind of like combating a low mood by, being, by trying to be happy, and then they get a bit of happiness, but it doesn't last. So it's, it's always this kind of stumbling kind of a thing. Yeah. And... Um, it's a, it's very sad to see it really, but um, what was I going to say? Um, it it's kind of it kind of goes to the heart of this the, the idea of the American dream, which I think is is not just an American dream. Right? It's a Western yes. cultural yeah. dream, right? But um, one of I heard a little anecdote on the way up is like um, um, what was that about about the American dream? He said, um, "Would you know why they call it the American dream?" One analyst said to another. And they said no, and he said, "Well, you have to be asleep to believe in it." Ah, very good. Right? Yeah. Okay. So there is this the blind. This going back to this imperative to enjoy the blind obedience to that can only lead to disappointment. Yeah. Maybe happiness for one or two. Yes. In terms of one or two will get there, right? Yeah. And they'll make the film or they'll make the record. It will all be good. Yeah. But for the vast majority of them, it's not really going to happen. Yeah. And that can be a very disappointing thing because again, it goes back to the self. I, there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. Peter made it. I didn't make it. Why not? It's something yeah. to do with me. Yeah. Right. So the the social imperative to enjoy becomes an individual responsibility, mm-hmm. and then it's an individual's fault, and then we can see what happens from there. Yeah. Right? In terms of low mood, and sometimes suicide. Yeah. Right. And the weird the weird thing is this is what I love about Freud and mm. Freud's kind of uh, dream analysis is that actually the the American dream is a waking dream. So it's a it's it's what we feel when we're walking around, when I'm in Los Angeles and I'm seeing all these people and this stuff that, that evokes desire. Right, so this, when you were in this coffee shop and you saw all these people yeah. having fun and being happy, you were... I believe in it, yes. I even believe in it for myself. And yet, when I sleep, potentially that's where I encounter the truth. You know, potentially when I sleep, I'll maybe have nightmares. I'll have like a, I'll, I'll confront my traumas Right. And so in the Lycanian idea is that, that sometimes you have to wake up in order to dream. Because weirdly, in your own dream life, you might encounter more of the truth of yourself than in your waking life where you're thinking, everything's fine, everything's good, and you're pursuing your dreams, and you maybe even think you've got it. And, yeah. and, and, yet, and yet you can't sleep, or when you sleep you have nightmares. And, and I do find it interesting how many people I know today who Ooh. have trouble sleeping. Or who yes. have serious nightmares and serious kind of like a disturbances of their sleep, and it's and it can it can be related to this increase in anxiety, mm. right? This difficulty with sleeping nerves, and that's also related then to this injunction to enjoy, right, and to be successful and to be happy. Yeah, because if I'm not, then there's something wrong with me, so that makes you anxious, and then you get into this kind of feedback loop, right? I'm anxious, so I have to try to be try harder to be happy and try harder to enjoy, which again leads to more and more disappointment. So you get an increase in anxiety, right? Mm. And, you know, attendant depression, because they're more or less the same thing, they're on the spectrum, right? Anxiety mm. and depression. Um, so that would make sense, because if you're an extremely anxious person, difficult to get to sleep, because I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta do the other, I gotta make myself happy, I gotta make my boyfriend or girlfriend happy, I gotta make everybody happy, right? Yeah. Then I'll be happy, Yeah. right? So there's this command, and that will keep you up at night. Yes. That's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if then, right, if yeah. the Christmas, 
And I, I do like this is a, making sense in some way, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it, if, if in, a, in a way this there's a super inju- super ego injunction to enjoy, yeah. we feel it very deeply. At Christmas, it becomes almost personified. You 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 feel it like in in the pictures that you see in the cards that your friends like send. you said it's like a walking light it becomes walking everything around you becomes like that yeah. becomes like that yeah, yeah. At, that, at this time yeah. yeah so the question then is uh then what is what does psychoanalysis offer um <laughs> to to the person who feels uh, particularly at this time but in their life is this injunction to have better sex, better friendships, more money, kind of being more parties, being more social. This, this notion of like a, that, that you need to enjoy more. What, is, what does analysis offer? Uh, the freedom to be incomplete and to not mm. enjoy. God, I feel like I set that up to knock it down because that's exactly right. I love that. Like that's, that's kind of the core of my work in terms mm. of a, at a communal level is like right. this beautiful freedom not to enjoy, this beautiful freedom to embrace your incompleteness to affirm it and even enjoy it and i think zizek says i prefer not to yes right that's that's kind of what he that's how he phrased it which i think is quite a good way yeah yeah things. that's good so yeah th- but this idea of incompleteness is extremely important yeah um because you know this imperative to enjoy it implies that there's a place that you can get to where freud talked about this oceanic feeling that some people have and I think a lot of people have it when they take drugs when they take yeah. hallucinogenic drugs they have this feeling of being at one with something and not really being in themselves anymore being part of something bigger yeah. which maybe goes towards young, more kind of Jungian kind yeah. of notions of collective unconscious and stuff like that but to have that as, a, as an imperative to get to that place mm-hmm. where you're not yourself anymore and you're at one with something bigger than yourself I guess and um, that can be quite a command, right? Mm-hmm. That can be quite something to live up to. So to be able to say, no, I'm actually okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not really ever going to get there. And it's not like it's a place anyway. It's a state of mind or it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a psychical thing, I guess. But to be able to say, no, I'm not really going to get there. Um, and I'm okay with the fact that I'm not complete or there's a bit of me that is a bit fucked up. Yeah. Okay, that's all right. Because... Yeah. What psychoanalysis aims at is not what therapy aims at, which is a corrective experience, Mm -hmm. right? So therapy aims at corrective experience to adapt to your society, okay? Um, Whereas psychoanalysis aims at looking at you and recognizing that you have a certain way of being in the world. And that way of being was something that through your symptoms you felt persecuted by or you didn't quite understand why I was doing what I was doing, this idea of repetition and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But to kind of reorganize your relationship to these motivations and to live your life more or less the same way, but to be more content doing so. Yes. To, so this idea of losing something, the lost object, which mm-hmm. is what the end of analysis is supposed to be, right? This, you lose something, but you gain something. Yeah. Okay. Um, in a way, you lose the lost object. Is that how you set it? Because in, like, in the lost you lose, object... You lose your attachment, perhaps, yeah. to the lost object. Yeah. Or that kind of anxious attachment to it. Yeah. And the lost object, like in a nutshell, would be... Yeah. So it, it's like an original loss. In fact, I heard one analyst mm. use a distinction, which I like, between lack and loss. 
Right. Um, so a loss is you, you you had something and you misplace it. Right. And the lack is it's not that there was something pre the lack. The lack is is the loss is original. Yes. So the lost object is a type of lack. It's a type of you you have this sense of incompleteness yes. and that tends towards a fantasy of something that can fill that lack. Right. So yeah. to lose the lost object is to lose your attachment to the fantasy that there is something that can fill the lack. That there is something beyond the lack. Yes. To yes. make it whole. Right? Yeah. It's so you lose your attachment to that idea. Yeah. And you accept that I like to enjoy certain things. I like to do this. I like to do the other. And yeah. I'm okay with that. I mean, is it Shel Silverstein? The guy who he writes the comic books? Not comic books. Oh, yeah, yeah. He wrote, yeah. He wrote this one thing called The Missing Piece. Mm -hmm. So it's about this, this circle that has a missing piece. So it goes around all its life looking for the piece that will fill it. And then he gets the piece, he fills himself, mm -hmm. and then he stops wanting, he stops desiring, he stops needing things. Oh, yeah. So he stops talking to all the plants and the trees and all this kind of stuff. And he becomes like a very bored little circle. So ah, he realizes good. that he needs needs the missing piece, yeah, to keep on going. Yeah, you know, it's the recognition that I have this lack, but this lack motivates me or makes me look outside. Yeah, makes me experience the world, makes me engage with the world. Yeah, and not not retreat and withdraw from it. I mean, this all has like mm. deep connections with philosophy and theology. So, mm -hmm. so in theology, the two standard positions in theology are. Um, or let's say in religious theory um, is that there is a lack um, a sense of incompleteness that can be filled there was something a previous unity or wholeness yes. there's been a loss of that and there's a return to that and then depending on eastern and western modes either the lack is an illusion that you have to see through or it's an ontological reality you have to overcome, right? And which is which, the Eastern, the Eastern mode is, a, is its... Veil of illusions. illusions. Mostly, yeah, more so in Eastern religions, you get this idea that this sense of incompleteness is a type of veil of illusions you must see through. And yeah. then in Western religions, it's more of, no, there's, a, there's a, a, a break within reality itself that has to be overcome, like Christianity in its right. confessional form. This, okay. Yeah. Then the second is there is this incompleteness or lack mm -hmm. that is cons that that you can't overcome because of the limits of finitude at least in this life right uh, maybe right. in the next life but it's not something that you will experience here and now there is a certain limit to being human to a certain extent you have to embrace it but yes. it's still a sense that there was something you'll just never get it back yes then the third position which is um uh, and this is where I think Hegel's really interesting. But the third position, and this is where parotheology comes in, is the third, and, and it connects with Lacan, okay. is that no, this incompleteness is neither something that you can fill now, or you have to just acknowledge that, oh, you'll never get there, but actually it's constitutive of being human. Yeah. It is, it's not, it's not something bad, it's not something uh, that, that can be filled, or we'd even want to. It's kind of like, this antagonism or deadlock that we experience is actually what 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 creates us as subjects. Mm -hmm. I mean, here here's a here's a and I guess like sorry, to okay, yeah. but I think Lacan would have talked about that somewhat in terms of the when when language is introduced, we are 
we are split off from something. We are split off from another reality or another world. And it's not necessarily a negative thing that he's talking about. Yeah. But then that language itself has this hole in it. It has this lack in it. Because yes. it can't represent everything. So it can go on forever and ever and ever, but it can't represent everything. So something is missing. Yeah. And what is this thing that's missing? Yeah. It's, it's where the unconscious comes out, right? The unconscious speaks. Mm-hmm. It speaks in dreams and slips of the tongue and, you know, fumbled actions or whatever. So that's where you need to look for it to find the root of your symptom, your suffering. Yeah. Right? This is, by the way, is why and in my world, mm. uh, there's within the religious theory, there are a lot of people who are called progressives, um, okay. theological liberals, and they hate the term generally original sin, right? All of this terminology is pretty ne- seen as negative. I love it. Because original sin, and I think is actually I one love of the, a wee bit of original. I love sin. it. I love it. I'm a good old Northern Ireland Protestant. Uh-huh. Is it, you know, bit of original sin yes. is that is that this actually is I think one of the first systematizations of this type of idea, i.e., original meaning coming first, and sin meaning separation or lack. That there is an original lack yeah. that is constitutive of being human. Now. In terms of it, how it developed theologically, you know, that's all, that's all a bit silly. Right, being but, born with original sin. And, you know, yeah, yeah so, but, you know, okay. but the original kind of scholastic discussions around this, yeah. I think, were the first like systematic attempts to genuinely make sense of this type of constitutive lack that, mm. that makes us who we are. Yeah. You know? And it's driven like most creativity in the world as well, right? It's like, how do, how do I represent myself how do i describe myself and the, and this lack that i yeah. feel while still seeing the beauty of the world but you know it's always at a distance it's never it's never tangible it's never material but it's it can be represented through words through art film yeah. or whatever it is right so yeah. this is what drives us it, this lack is what drives us yes and um, so it's quite contradictory in that sense yeah right? and this is, this is by the way it like, deprives us and it drives us yeah yeah so i mean th- this is why like um, again, to do a theological thing, because that's yeah. part of my area, is that mm. this is why I like the idea of forgiveness of sin. Um, people talk, you know, if I pay a debt, a debt yeah. is a nothingness. It's a lack of something. It's a debt that keeps you embroiled in jobs you hate, etc., etc. Yeah. But if I pay your debt, I fill the lack. I get the, the debt, which is a nothingness, and I fill it with money, right? Okay. But if, if I forgive a debt, I don't, I don't fill the lack. I just render it nothing. So I take the nothingness that is something, the debt, and I say it's nothing. So I say, you don't owe me anything. I take the nothingness and render it nothing. Okay. So this idea of forgiveness of debt, I do think is similar to the uh, psychoanalytic cure, which cool. is, um, which is in a sense, taking the sting out of the lack. Uh, not getting yeah. rid of it, not filling it, but somehow um, taking its, taking away, because the, whole, the problem with debt Hmm. It's not the debt, it's the, it's the letters that are telling you you have to pay the debt. I know a few friends who got into a lot of right. debt. Yeah, 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 and the, what made them alcoholics was, was, the, was the letters, the phone calls, the person knocking at the door saying yeah. you have to repay the debt. And some of them became bankrupt. And the bankruptcy didn't pay the debt, it just stopped all the debtors. And so I kind of think of sometimes a society as those debtors who keep coming around, knocking on your door, saying, you have to pay the debt. You have this lack. You have to fill that lack, mm-hmm. right? You, you have this duty to fill the lack. Yeah. And somehow in the analytic setting, you help people um, exorcise 
that injunction um, to feel, to, to be, I suppose, navigate that lack in a more healthy way. Yeah, and I guess that's, yeah, I guess that's the, the main side effect of it, right, is to understand that in terms of psychoanalysis, in yeah. terms of the cure or the effect of psychoanalysis. I yeah. don't know if it's, if it's correct to call it a cure as of yet, but yeah, um, yeah certainly that's, that's a very, um, it can be a very oppressive thing for people. Yeah, yeah. That, that um, the knocking on the door. Yes. You know, you have a debt, you don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't have materiality in effect, but like you're right, if people knock on the door, you get the letter. So there is this pressure, right? It's just yeah. a constant kind of a pressure people feel. Yeah. And that's a very oppressive thing. Yeah. You know? Like you have this in the, in the there, I, th- I read the Jewish creation story as an eatable story. Um, okay. So you've got Adam and Eve, yeah. You've got God, you've got a prohibition, right? And, and Adam and Eve break through the prohibition to get the piece of fruit that they think will make them like God, whole and complete. It's not a blessing, it's a curse, it's a disaster. So you have this eatable thing where Oedipus wants to sleep with his mother, mm-hmm. fathers the prohibition, he breaks through the father's prohibition, sleeps with the mother, it's a disaster. And in the story that I really like is there's a serpent that is saying, if you eat that apple, you'll be like God, you'll be whole and complete. Mm-hmm. And we think that we have to obey that voice. There's something out there, a sacred apple, a lost object, that if we get, we will be like God, because God traditionally lacks the lack, right? So you will lack the lack, you'll be whole and complete. Yeah. And we obey that voice, we pursue the sacred fruit, the lost object, yeah. and if we, if we don't get it, we're unhappy. And if we do get it, it's an absolute disaster. And right. the idea is actually to exorcise the serpent. And I kind of do see certain connections between the serpent and the superego. You know? And like the advertising industry. Yes, for example. exactly. That could be the modern day serpent. Yes, that's yeah. it. Perfect, okay. yeah. But you do have like, you know, the, the, um, the relationship between Freud and like the advertising world. Bert, Edward Bernays, right. and he was Freud's nephew, I believe. Is it nephew? Yeah. Bernays, yeah. So he, he started all the, the Madison Avenue ad agencies and public relations firms and giving people what they want, this idea of um, you know creating desire. I mean, that, that's like the dark side. Like, isn't it interesting that this incredible mm-hmm. science that's developing, the theory of science, and this, this uh, a kind of the, the heresy then starts well, the mean, advertising? Well, if you world. think about psych- psychology generally, I mean, you think about what what it can do, the benefits it can bring to people in terms of understanding, and some of the uses it's put to, like in the U.S. military, for example, in yeah, terms of yeah. interrogation techniques, etc., 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 how to break somebody down, right? So you can always use the good for, well, not the good. You can use methods for good or bad, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, every it's like a fire. Fire can cook food or it can burn you. And when you're dealing with anything <laughs> like true, this, yeah. yeah, it's going to go either direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what I think, one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you is, right, yeah. I, so a lot of my work takes these theories, I'm trained primarily in philosophy, and mm. I'm interested in how <clears throat> these ideas actually have, help us understand philosophical questions, the nature okay. of the universe. However, the theory actually developed primarily in the clinic, you know, for the helping actual people in yeah. the, uh, on the couch. Um, and one of the ways that I square that, and that's why I want to have conversations with people like you, because I want to see how this works in its original context and not just in, in, the, abstract, clinical context? in, in the clinical context. Okay. It's fascinating to me. But something that uh, philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich talked about, which I really like, is that this is a bit of an adaptation of what he said. But is that the role of the psychotherapist he was talking about, or the psychoanalyst, mm-hmm. is 
you start off with in a very with a very with an individual who has maybe a very concrete individual problem they're facing. They're going yeah. through Christmas. They're struggling with a broken relationship. You yes. start there, and very gradually, you potentially help them see that the problems that they face are there's something about conflict and um, struggle as part of life and that actually mm -hmm. we often are getting something out of that or whatever so very gradually it sounds like you're enjoying yes this, this struggle and the yeah. pain you're enjoying your pain yeah okay yeah. and then you help very gradually i guess someone maybe gets to see that 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 kind of struggle is universal to some extent they kind of they widen their view Mm -hmm. So it's it's out there, and then go like on the other side. The the role of the priest, the parotheological priest, yes. it starts on the very grandiose. They start they talk about the nature of reality as antagonism, and um, talk about the non non at oneness of the world. Yeah. But that actually connects with individual people. It does start to um, people can begin to find some relief in their own individual lives by hearing that message. Sure, yeah, of course. And actually, at some point, you meet in the middle. For some people, there's very acute reasons why they need to see someone on a weekly basis or two times or three times a week. Yeah. But for others to be part of a community where these ideas are expressed in art, in mm -hmm. music and poetry is important. But actually they're kind of doing the same thing, but just in a, uh, on a different level. You know what I mean? Psychoanalysis isn't a cure for all. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, there are certain people who suffer very acutely with things that psychoanalysis has been a more drawn out kind of an affair would, wouldn't work for them because they're faced like they're thinking about ending their lives immediately or whatever whatever it may be it's not going to work for people like that okay yeah. um, so they need to have other avenues and they do and there, there are services for that and then there are people who do find relief in the idea of God and the idea of like community around God yeah and that's fine too yeah you know? now, the interesting thing about the, the, the theological work that I do yeah. is Interestingly, it's different from the confessional notion of God, because in the confessional notion of God, kind of God is <clears throat> kind of it's almost like the counselor who's going to fix you, help you, make you feel good, you know. Yeah. God and and we all here's a, here's the similarities. If I go to see you as mm -hmm. an analyzant, mm -hmm. I do go with a certain fantasy that you're going to fix me, sure, right? That you're gonna you're gonna make me better, and and you you know I, you allow that fantasy to a certain extent that's what brought me to the table like if, if, if I came to you and you said right from the start I am going to get you back with your partner I ain't going to like be able to fix that you know maybe we'll get to the point where you're able to have a more everyday unhappiness about it right I'd probably go away because I don't want yes. that in the same way people go to church often because they want God to be the what will fix things make things good make things right yes now most confessional religion plays into that Parotheology is the idea that that God mm -hmm. is a self-divided subject, um, and that so the idea is that very gradually you realize that God or the absolute or reality itself is itself in conflict, is divided, is not at one, and as you identify with, so it's similar. I think a similar to analysis in the sense of as the liturgical structure becomes the stand-in for God. Uh, just like you maybe become a stand-in for the mother or father or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then very gradually the, the liturgical structure enacts doubt, complexity and ambiguity. And the liturgical structure enacts the death of God. Okay. And if you as the congregant 
are symbolically identifying with the liturgy as in a sense God, then as that liturgical structure enacts doubt, complexity, ambiguity, that can shift that internal object, God. Yeah. And you become more comfortable with uh, incompleteness and uncertainty and, and all of that. But it's happening at a very communal level. So this I, is the liturgical thing you're talking yeah. about? What, what does that relate to exactly when you say liturgical? Liturgical, just just this, just basically the art form of the sermon, the the the, right. the music, the, the whole theater, the whole of, the, the theater of the theatrical yes. services or whatever you want to call. It. Okay, Sorry. but 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 what I do okay. with power theology is it, it's not in the confessional church, so it's a it's a very different type of liturgical thing, but it uses yeah. the same elements: music, words, right. art, mm-hmm. um, to enact to enact this uh, this type of. Um, in, almost in the same way that maybe if I'm projecting my father onto you, yes. and yet you're not reacting the way my father would, and in fact you're kind of impotent in a way. You're not giving me advice. You're not judging me. You're not telling me I'm good or bad. Um, yeah. And maybe at a certain point, then I start to experience a shift in that internal object, father, mm-hmm. through basically the fact that I've put that onto you, and you're not. Well, it's, it's almost like a de-identification, right? I mean, you you identify with your father. Let's take your father, for example. You've identified yeah. with him in such a way that you're trying to regurgitate that with me as, yes. a, as an analyst or whatever. But it's about how I respond. If I respond to the transference, like I, like we said, like if we look at it and go, you know what you're doing now? You're, you're looking at me as your father and blah, blah, blah. Then it's not effectual, yes. right? But if I answer in a different way or don't answer then you have to question your position vis-a-vis your father yes right okay and the reality of that notion that you have about him because yes. a lot of this is about going back to Oedipus etc demythologizing your family like going back to Christmas demythologizing Christmas right yeah like what was my Christmas like when I was seven? Oh, it was great, but my mother was running around like a blue arse fly cooking, and my dad was out working all God, all the hours God sent to get the presents. Okay, yeah. So it was a bit of a, a drag for them. Yeah. And then we can have a little bit more of a nuanced relationship with those people if yeah. they're still living. Yeah. Right? Well, see, that that's exactly the way you you described it with the word de-identification. Yeah, because that, we have such a strong identification, we have to de-identify in order to re-identify then like this goes back to the idea that we were talking about 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 the lack right to re-identify like, like letting go of a certain attachment to that lack. yes but okay, well, that yeah. Sorry, oh no 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 this is great because that, that's what um that's what the power of theological liturgical structure is trying to do is mm-hmm. with and it doesn't say it it doesn't express it yeah. it's like it doesn't like you said at the beginning as well like you don't stand outside of it and go oh, this is going on you it's 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 enacted so in the theatre of this liturgy, mm-hmm. you have a certain, and for me, God is basically the name for the absolute, right? So the, whatever yeah. the absolute is. Everything, the everything, all. Everything, the all. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the, our, natural, <clears throat> our natural understanding of the all is that it lacks the lack. It is whole, it's complete, it's substantial. Yeah. And therefore, when you enter into the liturgical Spaces, what we did in Belfast, and a great uh, nationalist bar called the Menagerie every month. Is, is that uh, in, the, in the city? Uh, yeah, in the South Belfast. Is it still there? It's still there. It only opens occasionally now. Right. There's a big IRA arms find in it. We had all closed down, but it reopened after that. It's a uh-huh. good spot. Um, but what you did is um, by 
the person's projecting onto the liturgy, God, mm-hmm. the absolute. They're also expecting a certain thing back. A return. They, a return. Mm-hmm. And they don't get that return. What instead they get back is a fragment, a fracture. One is the, the liturgical structure holds them in their anxiety and in their feelings, but mm-hmm. also then de-identifies them from what uh, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the deus ex machina God, which is the God of wholeness, completeness, will fix all your problems, all of that. Yes. And here's the trick, not that I'm trying to kind of convert you to paratheology, but if you want to raise a hand, you're welcome. Sure. Is, um, is that the idea is if you're able to change a person's experience of the absolute, right. it'll also help them because there's all these uh, ersatz absolutes in the world sex yeah. drugs mm-hmm. uh, consumerism all these other different ways that we're trying to find wholeness and completeness mm. but if you can create a liturgical structure over a prolonged period of time in someone's life that can help free them from these other types of uh, right. kind of absolutes that that these so basically it it, it basically um uh, subtracts you libidinally from a frenetic pursuit of a lost object. That's the kind of the game. So that's what I call salvation. Okay. Uh, that's what you call salvation. Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly salvation in this world, it's yeah. it sounds like. But I mean, I'm kind of reminded of that movie Silence, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. And I like love the, that. Like these people are being persecuted for their beliefs and they're kind of calling out to God for, for an answer and nothing comes. It's yeah. silence. And... You have to pursue with the thing, with the belief, even when there's nothing come back. And that's what that's what faith. It become belief then becomes faith, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. It, it changes, it morphs, and then maybe what you're talking about happens for people. Yes, and, the, and I've the, never had those ones because I've never been persecuted for my beliefs. Thank uh, God. But the and the ultimate moment, I don't know if this is in the film or not. You tell me. It was a while since I saw. Yeah, it, but, it's been a while since I saw it too. Yeah. yeah, but is that so? At first, you know, you cry out, right. and there's silence. And the first thing is maybe the acceptance of that silence and the embrace of it. But the, for me, the theological move mm. is not that you embrace the silence as a type of experience of the absurd. Uh, the universe is not giving me what I want. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not a withdrawal. It's that the, 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 the true kind of move, what Hegel calls absolute knowledge, yeah. is whenever you realize that the silence is the answer. That faith is not, I'm mm. able to believe despite the silence. It's, it's when you have faith in the silence itself. It's when, the, it, when you embrace the incompleteness itself. Right. So for Hegel, it's like what you do is you're always, right, at any point in history, you've got antagonisms and even questions. Mm-hmm. And as you answer those questions, you feel like you're progressing to a point where at least hypothetically you will have answered everything. But Hegel says that basically what you do is you just you go to deeper and deeper contradictions. You're not progressing towards less and less contradiction. You're actually going deeper and deeper and deeper. And he says, and then there's a certain point when you see that contradiction is intractable. And that's when you get to absolute knowledge for him is because that's when you realize that that you're not trying to move away from contradiction. You know, in everyday life you are. Yeah. But but actually the real trick is that you realize that there's contradiction hard-baked into reality and that when you can accept that, you enter into a different modality of being. Right, okay. Yeah. So that that, that for me, that's so that's what Hegel calls absolute knowledge. Is, right. And 
that for me is almost like what seems to happen in analysis. It's not trying to get you away from the contradiction. It, it actually is, you know, you start off as going, I hate my partner, I'm really annoyed with them. And then maybe you go to a deeper contradiction. It's like, well, actually, I hate my mum. I'm really annoyed at her. And then you maybe get to a deeper contradiction, which is I hate life, right? Life is difficult and yeah. the trauma that's existence. And, and what you find is you're not like getting rid of contradictions. You're just getting more and more intractable until you go, oh, and it's like, and this is where quantum mechanics becomes interesting to me. Because uh -huh. at the level in quantum mechanics, you go like at a, at a quantum level, it seems like antagonism and deadlock is 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 part of reality itself. Right. Um, so yeah. Right. Okay. So it, it sounds a little bit like this idea of traversing the fantasy, right? The, ah, yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, I don't really understand it too well. I mean, it's a very difficult concept to be mm -hmm. honest with you. But it's all it's almost like the unconscious has a yes and a no. There's a yes and a no in the unconscious. So this idea of intractability, it's it's true and it's not true. Mm. There's a yes, there's a no. So it's it's not this either or of normal thinking. Okay, it's it's seeing that yeah, there there's a yes and a no. Right. And living with that. Yes. Because that because when there's a yes and a no, there's something incomplete about that too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um. So you got it. That's it's about learning to live with that. There's a yes and a no inside of me. Yeah. And that that feels like that. What what's fascinating. This is why I like Shizak's work actually, because especially uh -huh. in recent years, he's very much he spent a lot of time um, getting proficient at least kind of like at a at a basic level with physics, and he's mm. connecting the Lacanian psychoanalytic ideas with the Hegel's philosophy and with some developments in quantum mechanics. Okay. To say that this yes do this kind of, um, you know, like a symptom in a way. The basic notion of a symptom really is it's a, a, a congealment of contradiction. Like maybe if someone's biting their, they're you know clenching their jaw, they want to speak and they want to stay silent or whatever it is. Yes. That 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 actually isn't just part of subjective reality or whatever. It's actually like the the wave particle duality is a type of. Uh, expression of that in physics right? okay or or Gödel's on uh, incompleteness theorem in mathematics which yes. which really shows that when mathematics becomes so strong that it describes reality it falls into contradiction um that's fascinating because Gödel himself said well that that means that mathematics can't describe reality that's what kant said by the way kant said if you use reason incredibly um deeply and mm -hmm. consistently you get to contradictions Yes. There's freedom, there's determinism. The, the universe is eternal, it's had a beginning. God exists, God doesn't exist, all of that. Yes. But then, then Kant turned around and said, so therefore reason doesn't work, right? At that level, so stick with sciences, because obviously we fall into contradiction and that means there's something wrong. But then Hegel mm. comes along and goes, no, no, no. Contradiction is baked into the pie. That's yeah. the actual pie. That's itself. the pie. So you actually had more of an insight than you thought. You yeah. pulled back from the from the central insight. Yes. And that that's why I loved what, what Freud was doing. I mean, actually, there's a guy called Todd McGowan. I don't know if you've read his work. He's a film theorist, but he's a Lacanian as well. I, I haven't read him, but I've heard him. Yeah, he's very good. But he, um, he actually said that one of the reasons why Hegel is so difficult to read is that Hegel was, you know, he's really pushing the philosophical language of his day to extremes and also trying to work it out himself. But that actually the Freudian language of the unconscious can help us understand Hegel better because there was something of what Hegel's doing with absolute knowledge, right. which is similar to what Freud is doing with the idea of the subject, 
which is similar now to what we see within even biology, evolutionary theory. What's that if it's not, you know, biology is the symptom of the antagonism of reality, you know, like the, right, the right, yeah. Yeah, conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and similar in mathematics, similar in quantum mechanics, like all of these different areas yes. are coming to something similar. Yes, well, they're, it's, it's like a unifying theory, right? Yeah. It's becoming a unifying theory. <laughs> of non-unity. <laughs> and well, a unifying of contradiction, yeah. Of, yeah. Um, of difference, of, yeah. you know, a lack of knowledge. And I guess modern day science, uh, my understanding of it is that it, it aims at like um, yes and no kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's very, it's empirically based, obviously, and um, it, it aims towards knowing one thing or the other, right? It, it aims at separating things out yeah and i think what you're talking about with quantum mechanics is it leaves it as an open field right and there is all the stuff in it and which is what the nature of reality is i believe yeah like so i think science doesn't doesn't help the cause of psychoanalysis like uh, hard sciences positivistic sciences no you know human sciences and this idea of like social social sciences have kind of gone out the window because this idea of replicatability is very very difficult in social sciences. You can't really replicate things. Yes, I can't. You so can't many. Them. It's like you can't step in the same river twice, right? You know, there's just so many moving parts that you can't replicate studies. Yeah. So you can never get that predictability. So therefore, they say it's not science. The other thing I, I love with yeah. psychoanalysis and mm. that different from psychology is that that I remember in my own psychoanalysis mm. there was something I that came up. Um, <clears throat> I think I, you know, it was actually like I, I was talking about an ex. And yeah. I said, you know, she was younger than me. You know, she was five years younger than me or more. Uh-huh. And uh, the uh, then the analyst was, um, was Bruce Fink. He was like, uh, well, you know, what do you think that means or whatever? And I said, well, that's just very common. I said, like, you know, I, but most people I know, a lot of guys are older, the, yeah. the women's younger. And, um, and he said, yeah, but what does it mean to you? And what I realized is, oh, yeah, of course, even if it's even if you do something that's completely normal, you could be doing it for pathological, there could be a pathology behind it. Yeah. Or you could be doing something that is completely out of sync with normality and there's no pathological dimension to it at all. Right. And that was int- I just that was a really nice little insight for me. It's like, oh yeah, it's like psychoanalysis doesn't deal with, it doesn't deal with um, average, averages partly because they treat the individual as a universe, as a singular, yeah. but also because the average wouldn't tell you anything about the person. Really, not very much. Like, no. you could, you could be. You know, I get up at nine o'clock. I get up at eight o'clock. Go to my job at nine. Come home at five. Dress in a suit every day, five days a week. Like that, you know. You go like that's the weirdest thing. You know, that could be your, <laughs> that could be your fetish, right? You know, but yeah, it's, yeah, but yeah. it's, but it's simply because it's normal. Um, right. you, anyone else would tend to go, oh, that's that's statistically normal. So there's nothing we need to analyze about it. Yes. But I love that a- anything is open to analysis. Yeah, well, anything in your life for yeah. sure is because, you know, the symptom, as one of my professors said, is the symptom is like something on the back of your head. Everybody can see it but you. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it's like these blind spots or whatever people call them. Uh, yeah. um, we all have them and we can't see them. Yeah. Right? So, like, in that sense, getting up and getting dressed in a suit five days a week, that could be pathological, I guess. Yeah. But it depends on what, what, why are you doing it? Yes, exactly. What's it about for you? Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So again, like this, this idea that sometimes a cigar is not a cigar. Yeah. And sometimes it is. 
And yes. sometimes it is aneurysms. Yes, sometimes it's a penis. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then maybe to finish off, because yes. I do want to come around to the transver- traversing the fantasy. Oh, I, thought, yeah, I was hoping and, uh, you'd forgotten about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Well, tra- traversing the fantasy and um, kind of uh, ending transference, I want to mention two yeah. ways that I think about those terms and then see what you think. Yeah. Because in, in my work, two of the things I want to help people, to free people from, is one, the idea of a guru. So I talk about the idea of a, the last guru. The last Good guru. luck with that in Los Angeles. There's a right? lot of gurus here. There's a lot of gurus here. There are. Yeah, I'm t- I know, and it frustrates me. Are you talking like, like, like I know some Eckhart Tolle and like the, what's his name? Yeah. The Indian guy? Uh, oh yeah, there's, uh, what's his name? Um, I met, well, I, I was at an event with him once. Yeah. Um, yeah, those, and there's lots of them. There's loads of them. Yes. Um, so yeah, part of my work is the idea of yeah you do need gurus as in we all we tend to look for gurus but what you want is you want a guru who basically disillusions you of all gurus right so there's the last guru which yes. i see in psychoanalysis in a way you go to a person to go you're going to fix me and the analyst part of what they do is they disillusion you of that very gradually you terminate at the end and so yes. part of my work is the end of transference the end of the, where the person is able to take responsibility yes. for themselves so mm-hmm. that's one and then the other is um, the, the loss of the fantasy of some utopia, some uh, fantasy of a wholeness of completeness. They're, they're, they're related. They're related, yeah, yeah. they're very interconnected. Uh-huh. And, um, and that's what I think of when I think of transfer, uh, uh, traversing the fantasy. Is yeah. it's, it's, you, know, you don't get, of course, you don't get rid of your fantasies and your desires and all that, but you change how you, you orient yourself in relation to them. Yes. And you start to, you almost focus on the struggle and the not having and the enjoyment of, the, so I, well, I think of my own work, so yeah. par- parotheology is a good example, is that, mm-hmm. so what is parotheology? It's nothing, it's just a made up word <laughs> that I'm now colonizing with meaning over the course of my life. Mm-hmm. And every course I give, I try to define what it is. And after every course, I feel like I didn't quite get it. Yes. And out of the continued failure to define what it is, it's starting to take shape. It starts to become something. Mm-hmm. And, but it will never be complete. And my enjoyment is, in a sense, the incompleteness of the project that yeah. keeps, 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 you coming keeps back. me coming back. Yeah. Now, if I had a fantasy about it, I would be always so depressed that I haven't named it. I would be so always trying to write the book <coughs> grasps at all of that. Yeah. So traversing fantasy for me is a, is a weird way of you're, you're motivated to, to work and to do things, but, but, it's, but you're freed from the fantasy that this is going to somehow kind of like give you the oceanic oneness mm-hmm. that, that you want. Yeah, you're, so, you're liberated from that constraining idea. Yeah. That there is, a, that there is an end. There is an end, exactly. Yeah. So that, that for me is the, the last guru and the um, traversing the fantasy, or the end of transference and traversing the fantasy, broadly speaking, in, in, in the type mm-hmm. of work that I do. I mean, is that comparative to, to the way you think of those terms, or how do, how do you think of it in the clinical setting? Well, in terms of the end of transference, I don't know if transference really ends in that sense. Um, I think one becomes more aware of it, you know, and mm. can change change like the intensity or the level of the yeah. transference and yeah. can recognize something that's maybe ha- happening or in, in the genesis of happening and i think that can certainly be a side effect of, of analysis and should be um, that we we don't transfer over as much or don't expect as much etc etc in the transference relationship so that certainly would be a benefit of psychoanalysis and um, traversing the fundamental fantasy is quite my understanding of it is quite similar to what you've described okay and mm. um, so yes i wouldn't be too far off in agreement with you there 
I don't really know enough about it because um, it's a very complicated notion and it's also because it's so singular and individual that what is the fundamental fantasy? Mm. Right. Yeah. This is, so, so what is this thing? It's, 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 a, it's a thing made up of reality, uh, fragments of reality, um, fragments of our experience, fragments of imaginary things that we have kind of compressed onto this. So it's, it's, um, it's an extremely individual thing, um, but it's the support, I guess, for what keeps our subjectivity going because we, according to the theory, is we create this fundamental fantasy or it comes into being because we feel this demand or desire from the other bit, you know, usually our parents, usually the mother because they're the most involved, this desire that's insatiable and you feel that you're going to get swallowed up by it. Mm -hmm. So this fantasy comes into play in order to stop you being swallowed up. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine then how difficult it is for people to traverse something that keeps them alive. Yes. Like, you know, like how, how do you navigate that, right? It's an extremely difficult thing and it can take more than one pass. Yeah. Right? It might be something you have to go around a lot. And um, so this idea of being stuck is where people generally get to this idea of they're stuck in mm. this place and they, they can't move. They can't free themselves from, because there's two elements to being stuck, I guess. There's, there's you being stuck and then the place that you're stuck in, mm -hmm. but they're together, right? Right. They fit. Okay. Yeah. So how do you, how do you um, dislodge yourself from that, but still remain a subject? Or remain sane. Okay, so how do you traverse that? It's it's a very delicate thing. Because because they, as you're yeah. saying, like this is in a sense what holds the person together. So this is yes. why there's so much resistance in analysis because in it, it can feel like you're asking someone to give up what makes them who they are. Well, you are in a way. Yeah, yeah, because it's not working. <laughs> well, yeah. You're asking them. Yeah, you're you're saying to them they they should give it up. Yeah. Because really this, and then go back to the transference, because this is nothing to do with me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the transference and the, and, and the fundamental fantasy are obviously intimately related. I mean, when you think about Lacan, he wrote a, um, one of his seminars, it's called The Four Fundamental Concepts of Psychoanalysis, which were, according to him, the unconscious, repetition, the drive, and transference, okay? So these are, these are things that are not tangible in any way. They're outside of our experience, right? The drive, transference, repetition, and the unconscious. Mm -hmm. so, but these are the fundamental building blocks of psychoanalysis. Yeah. So it's almost like where when you when you work with when you when you talk about gravity, right? Gravity is a theory that's clearly true, but there's no way to prove it really. But everything else falls from that or flows from that idea. Yeah. The same with these ideas of unconscious repetition drive and transference yeah without these ideas and the reality of them comes through the work yeah you see it as an anal analyst anal analyzer, you see them in the work you re you begin to yes. recognize them yeah yeah happening. i mean so, can't we call them like transcendental categories in a way it's like it's not right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah they're kind of like what you have to assume because <laughs> they, they they come yes. into being like never directly but indirectly through they're, they're the assumptions Peter, but they're also very very real yeah you know and they they show themselves um by displacement into our lives yeah like yeah. And the things that we do and the things that we say and, 
And another thing then you because you mentioned um, it's yeah. fundamental fantasy in the end of transparency. You know they're intimately interconnected. Mm-hmm. Another one that is connected with my work and with that is then this idea of the other. Yeah. And just to kind of go like my understanding of fantasy is that yeah. anxiety is created through the question, "What does the other want from me?" Right. So in in one in a way, the child is creating fantasies to kind of uh, get rid of the the anxiety of not knowing what say the mother and the father want from them Ooh. we create this these fantasies that um that then in some way kind of give us a place in the world answer the question what does the other want from me Ooh. so part of the death of the big other is part of this idea of traversing the fantasy which is part of this notion of ending transparency like these three concepts yeah. seem to be in some way intertwined yeah well the big the big other is something that we see as as to- total Okay, like yep. this idea of like the one or whatever that we've spoken a little bit about. I think that's what the what the child sees that the other as total, so they have to create this fantasy because they can get subsumed by this big other. Yeah. Okay. Um so they have to create the fantasy as a buffer See, between like them and the that, other. Yeah. Because like I always thought of it and you knew the material better, so I always thought mm. of it as kind of like the fantasy was, you know, just answering the question, what does the other want? Yeah. But actually this also makes sense and it brings back stuff that I've heard but have never been able to maybe fit is mm. that the fantasy is what you say it's a protection mechanism but to, to not be consumed a buffer, a a buffer. buffer right yeah and how does that how does that function and so basically a child can feel that yeah. like the anxiety of being everything say to the mother for example that, yeah. and so in order to to start to find a way to differentiate themselves yeah they they could they create this fantasy. well I mean if you think about something like a phobia Right, a phobia is like for spiders. Let's mm-hmm. say, spiders, yeah. right? So a phobia, from a psychoanalytic viewpoint, a phobia is a way to circumscribe anxiety into an object, i.e., a spider. Yeah. So I can take all the anxiety that's in the world around me that I feel every day, and I can circumscribe it in this little spider, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm scared of. And well, what is it about the spider? Because I'm six foot tall, and the spider is this size. So I mean. Is it really that scary? No, yeah. it's not. Like on a logical, reasonable level, it's not. But there yeah. is some logic to why the child has done that or why the person is afraid of, of spiders. Yeah. Because it's not just a certain type of spider, it's all spiders. Yes. Or, or whatever it is. You know, there's, there's these peculiarities to these things. So for going back to this idea of the, of the fantasy as a buffer, that's essentially what it's doing, right? It's, it's, it, it acts like in a similar way to a phobia psychoanalytically speaking yeah yeah okay so it acts as a buffer against this overwhelming big other other, okay but then the work of it is to see that the the other lacks there is no big other really yes there's just a little other it's just you and me and the big other isn't really there even though we kind of almost wanted to be there yeah it's not there yeah and that's that also plays into the traversing yes yeah, see, that's the connection for me in my mm. work. It's like the the idea of, of God, you know, in mm-hmm. Christ saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this idea of mm-hmm. God experiencing the, lo- the loss of God, the lack of God, yes. is in a way the acknowledgement that the other is also divided, which then weakens the fundamental fantasy and is connected to the weakening of transference. So all of these things are interconnected. Yes. And, and so, and that's that's kind of what paratheology is trying to do in a nutshell. It's kind of a type of Lacanian theology, very similar to what Shizek's doing, obviously, you know. But um, and yeah. I think it, 
like I don't, I don't know enough about theology to really opine this, but I, I would imagine, I think that that's kind of what Jesus was about, right? According to the parables yeah, yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that was the message that he kind of gave. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. See, that's what I think. And it's funny, like, that the, some of the most interesting theological work at the moment is uh-huh. being done by people who are not part of the church, not theistic, not Christian in that sense. Even Todd McGowan, yeah. is, uh, you know, he doesn't associate with anything religious, but he's, he's arguing for Hegelian Christianity, and Shizek is arguing for Christianity. And, um, because they're they're making the counterclaim that yeah. this is actually this is more true of the text than what we get, which is this kind of re- what I call a religious interpretation, which is similar mm. to the um, this idea of original sin and etc. etc. Like there's badness before goodness and yeah. Well, yeah. Although, funnily enough, my my critique of someone like Calvin or or Luther is that they're not they're not Calvinistic enough. Like, like it, original sin isn't original enough. It's a proper Northern Irish person speaking. <laughs> exactly. You've got to get it even darker. Because uh-huh. so, weirdly, they, they, the idea of original sin is, no, it's not original because there's always a blessing. There's always a wholeness before it. But if you take it seriously, original lack, you mm. go like, oh, then you get to a Lacanian theology, which is, oh yeah, that there's something about lack that is inherent to creatures of, of language mm-hmm. so um so yeah so i i want to i want to take luther and, and turn him up another notch right okay <laughs> and then like i suppose we finish on like zizek talks about like before before the universe was created he said that was that was kind of like the perfect time everything was in sync and then something went missing something cracked yeah right there was some kind of gap opened up and that's where it all comes from yes so it comes from Oh, yes. Although oh, now Shizek says, yeah, he, he kind of goes like that. Even now Shizek says, but but that that idea of a a kind of a a piece, a perfect piece before mm, the mm-hmm. fall, is um, but an illusion. Is an illusion. Yeah. Uh-huh. So Shizek's kind of mature work, which he's always been there, but he's being very explicit about it now, as he's saying that actually what comes first is the fall, um, and that. Right. And it generates the illusion of a pre-fall. Okay. And, uh, okay. and that's why he's trying to get into quantum mechanics because it's, although it's very complicated mathematics, but he's... Um, the lost object that never was. Exactly. That's what they say in psychoanalysis, right? Yeah. There's a lost object and it was never there. It was never there. But it's still yeah. lost. So yeah, so in one sense, a theology that still has, or a philosophy that still has this idea of a, of a, of a quiet kind of oneness that then falls. It, well, there's the old problem of how do you, how, what is the fall? Mm. But if you go with no, this notion of less than nothing, that nothingness yeah. itself has a certain uh, deadlock, um, then you know that's a way of explaining why everything exists. There you go. So we've covered a lot. We've gone from the struggle of Christmas, which uh-huh. is the super injunction to enjoy. Indeed. The, the cure, I'll say, of psychoanalysis is the freedom not to enjoy. And then how uh, what I'm doing in my work is in, in some sense analogous to that experience for, sure, yeah, for, sure. uh, for community. There you go. I think we did okay. I think so. Thanks very much. All right. Oh, by the way, I oh. want to say Sean uh, practices in Los Angeles. You've got yeah. a private practice. In West Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. And what's your areas of specialization? And if you work with all sorts. Oh, yoga. yeah. Everything and anything. Psychoanalysis works with the, with the whole person. So it doesn't matter whether it's anxiety, depression addiction if they're the symptoms yeah and we work with them to look at what's actually going on yeah. yeah so if you're i'm going to put the details uh with this video and with this audio but um if you live in los angeles at the greatest kind of greater area of los angeles um and you're thinking that you might want to kind of do some sort of psychoanalytic stuff 
uh, then uh, follow the website, have a look at it, see if uh, Sean might be a good fit. All right, take Thank care. You. Bye bye.